But I am really glad that you're here today and excited to continue our study in James as we find ourselves in James chapter 4. And, you know, we would like to believe that fighting and conflict is unique to the rest of the world, but excludes the church. Unfortunately, that is not the case. Actually, Tom Rainer took a Twitter survey uh, asking people for examples of church fights and conflicts, and he came back with some pretty disappointing and sometimes I would say even potentially shamefully humorous examples. For instance, one church had an argument over the appropriate length of the music leader's beard. I don't think we'll be having that problem. (laughs) But another church even had a petition to have all the the church staff clean-shaven. And one church had a big argument over the discovery that the budget was off, okay, by 10 cents. (laughs) Another had two business meetings to resolve whether or not they should buy a weed eater. There were uh, arguments over green beans and restroom stall dividers and and a clock and a filing cabinet and the type of juice that was used in communion. And apparently there was a major conflict when a youth group borrowed a crock pot that hadn't been used in years. There was a church lost members because of the type of coffee they used. Oh, Lord, help us. There was a church split because one member hid the vacuum from other members. (laughs) And I should also mention the two deacons who decided to settle a dispute in the parking lot. Oh, Lord, help us. I heard some laughs. It is hard not to laugh sometimes over the things that professing Christians fight about. But this might be an instance where we need to take James' advice that comes later in chapter 4, where he says our laughter should be turned to mourning. You see, we have not, the church has not been able to keep itself unstained from the world, as James put it earlier in chapter 1, when it comes to conflict. In fact, Kent Hughes shared a story from Leslie Flynn. He said, hearing a commotion in his backyard, he looked outside and saw his daughter and several playmates in a heated quarrel. And when he intervened, his daughter called back, Dad, we're just playing church. (laughs) Oh, Lord, help us. We know there's conflict. We've experienced it. We've seen it. We've heard about it. We know that it's there. But here's the thing. Just because you... But what's causing it? See, that's the question that we really have to understand. Because just because you hear a noise in your car, or you feel a vibration that's, that's unusual, or even see smoke pouring out from under the hood, doesn't mean that you know what the problem is. And I'm sure all of my DIY mechanics out there can give a hearty amen to that one. And until you figure out what's causing that problem, there's not going to be a way to fix it. Which brings us to the fourth chapter of James. The first six verses. 
which say, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whenever, so whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the Scripture says the Spirit He made to dwell in us envies intensely, but He gives greater grace? Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. God, we just invite You this morning to take this and to use it Your word is a double-edged sword and it cuts to bone and marrow. It cuts all the way deep down inside of us and that is exactly what this passage does. But we're going to be cut this morning, but we're also going to be lifted up and comforted and encouraged because that's what your word does too. It's, It's an amazing gift. We pray that we would value it for the gift that it is this morning and just let it do its work. Let the Holy Spirit do his work. Teach us what this means and teach us how to use it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what is the source of wars and fights among us? Now, if we had stopped there and just stopped reading and not gone any further, I could come up with some possible guesses. That we, that we might come up with, right? It's the people who don't contribute. It's the parents who don't keep their kids under control. It's the, it's the people who don't make things look the way that I think they should look. It's the musicians who don't pick the songs that I like. It's the pastors who don't preach the way that I want them to. It's the boomers. It's the millennials. It's the youth and all of their wokeness. It's the liberals. It's the Trumpsters. But James stops us in our tracks. Don't they come from the passions that wage war within you? Yes, James. Yes, they do. Now, we might think to ourselves, but that was our old self, right? Like, we're not, that's not who we are anymore. We're new creations. And you know what? That is a good point. In thinking through what James is teaching here, you might, and what he's talking about, you might come to like Titus 3.3 that says, Once we too were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. And so we read something like that, and we're like, yeah, that's what we once were. We used to follow our passions. We used to be hateful, and we used to be envious, and that's totally true. And, of course, in today's world and in the days of James, there were still many within the, the church, so to speak, who weren't true new creations, 
Instead, they're false converts or wolves in sheep's clothing who are still enslaved to sin. And when James talks about being an enemy of God, there are many in church attendants who are literally eternal enemies of the Lord. Like those that Paul talks about in Philippians 3, 18 and 19. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction. Their God is the belly. And their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But then there's the true church. And with the true Church, those who have truly repented and put their faith in Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Like, I'm not enslaved, so to speak, anymore. I don't live in envy and hatred and foolishness anymore. But there's also this reality that, man, it's, it's not all gone yet either. It hasn't all been rooted out. We see that in Paul's very own life. When he speaks about himself in Romans 7, 21 through 23, he said, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner person, but I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, the law which is in my body's parts. You see, Paul was grappling with this reality, this new reality that he had of having a a heavenly spirit in an earthly body. It was like he took one of these and then put one of these in it. You know, And, and, and we... That's the present reality of the Christian life, right? We got this new heart, but we still haven't replaced all the parts around it. And a new Christian feels that power of that new engine, but quickly realizes, man, there's still a lot of leaks in the system. There's still a lot of old rusted parts of me that weren't well maintained over the years. And so slowly over time, through that process of sanctification, we replace part after part after part as we get things running a little more smoothly and a little more consistently. But until we are find ourselves with sin completely removed in glorification with the Lord. We walk through this process still battling the flesh. There are still some passions waging war within us. And I don't know about you guys, but my greatest passion has always been me. And so if I seek to trace like my conflict or anger or resentment back to what's the source of it? Where does this come from? It usually leads me back to something that I wanted, but I did not get. Which takes us right into verse 2. You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. What causes outbursts of anger at my children? Because I desire peace. I desire cleanliness. I desire obedience. I desire not to be asked unnecessary questions. 
What causes conflict with my wife? I desire communication and love and attention. I desire to be right. What causes conflict with other people in the church? I desire us to value unity over personal grievances, right? I desire people to be in small groups for, for consistent attenders that are non-members to make that commitment of membership, for men to lead their families spiritually the way that God has called them to, for, for, for us to not get hung up on our preferences, Right? And for parents to step up in children's ministry and for older Christians not to give up and waste the last years of their lives. I desire for all of us to, to be about our mission to make disciples for our purpose to glorify God. But you know what? My kids don't always give me peace. Peace. And they're not always obedient. And they're not always clean. And sometimes they ask unnecessary questions over and over and over. And my wife doesn't always give me everything that I want. And you know what? Sometimes, even on occasion, she's right. And the people in church don't always value unity. And you're not all in small groups or discipleship groups. And you don't all attend consistently. And the, not all of our men are being the spiritual leaders of their family that they should be. And some of you will continue to attend forever and never become members. And others get hung up on how they want things to look or the songs that we sing. And our children's ministry continues to be filled with female volunteers. And even those getting older in age. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand the point of this because this isn't a complaint session. In fact, I'm not even I'm not using this passage as an opportunity to air my grievances or anything like that because in a second I'm going to show how this works and point the finger right back at myself. But I, I think I can be honest about desires. I have desires in me, don't you? We have desires, but the problem is not everybody else always cooperates. Sometimes my desires are good, okay? Sometimes they're good, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes I just have the wrong desires, but here's the thing. Even when my desires are good and others aren't cooperating with them, the battle is not really between my desires and their desires. I mean, it can be, and when it is, that's where the conflict comes from, right? Because it's, here's what I want, here's what you want, and let's fight it out until one of us gets what we want, but if we want to avoid the conflict, then it has to change between a battle between my desires and God's commands. His commands to be patient anyway, and kind, and gentle, and humble, and self-controlled. To put the interests of others before my own. To love others the way that Jesus loves me. You see, my desires, even when they are good desires, they become a source of conflict and sin when they turn into demands. That is biblical counseling 101. Desires, whether good or bad, quickly and easily transition into expectations. And expectations, whether they're good or bad, quickly and easily transition into demands. And when that happens, 
fight. We wage war. We desire and do not have, so we murder. Like lashing out at my family because it's not quiet enough. Or saying hurtful words because our spouse isn't cooperating with our plans. We covet and cannot obtain, so we fight and quarrel. Why did they get the promotion and not me? Why do they have the position of leadership and not me? I wanted it, so now I'm going to attack someone to get it. Why, do, why does everyone like their posts and not mine? Why does that church's YouTube videos get thousands of views and ours gets a dozen? We desire things that we don't have and we envy things that others have. So we fight and we wage war. And that's strong language being used by James. And we should take note of how strong it is. But why can't I just get the things that I want? Well, James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Oh, okay. Simple enough. All right, let's do this. All right, God, I can ask. All right, I'm asking. I want peace. I want attention from my spouse. I want that promotion or leadership position. I want the likes and views and shares. I want all the people in the church to just listen to me. Okay, God, give me, please. To which James is like, hold up going to have to stop you right there for a minute. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. It's like we, we find I, I, it's like God responds to our prayers sometimes just with the question why? It's like why Matt? Why do you want peace? Why do you want attention? Why do you want that promotion? Why do you want likes and shares and views? Why do you want everyone to listen to you? Is it for my glory? Is it because you truly believe that that's the best way for disciples to be made? Is it because you're putting, you're thinking of others more than yourself? To which often we have to hang our heads and say, No, sir. You see, while trying to get our desires, we can often find ourselves prayerless for good reasons. I like the way that Sam Albury put it. He said, prayerlessness arises from a sense of independence from God. So that instead of praying about our desires, we indulge them. Rather than trusting in the Father who delights in giving good gifts to His children, we ourselves decide what is good and seek to gain it through our own efforts. You see, sometimes we don't pray because we don't want the answer. But then on the other side, we find ourselves maybe not prayerless, but pretentious. And if you're like, well, what does that look like? I don't, I don't know that word. Well, I like the way that Rico Tice describes this. He said, we turn God into a divine waiter. He's there to deliver our daydream to us. We touch base with Him on a Sunday. We put our order in via prayer. We might give a decent tip in the collection plate. But God is essentially there to give us what we feel we need. And we get furious with him if he doesn't deliver. James has not been describing churches too flatteringly so far. And it's about to get worse. 
in verse 4. He says, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility with God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Now that language being used here makes us think of marriage. Right? The adulterous people. James calls them adulterous. And that's what we are. We're bound in this covenant relationship to our God, yet we keep prostituting ourselves out to the world. And it reminds me of the prophet Hosea back in the Old Testament. Man, it, he was a prophet in the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with his story, it's, it's not a very long book. Maybe you've read it, but you didn't even notice. Because even in the book itself, it doesn't talk too much about his marriage. But if this guy's story God told him to marry a prostitute and so he did he obeyed God but you know what being married to a prostitute was like not great she didn't stay faithful to Hosea she went out with other men instead and even though she was in this new marriage she did not commit herself fully to married life (laughs) what does God do you know what God said to Hosea Oh, man. Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. Look at these words. The Lord said to me, Go show love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man, is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. We could sit and just stare at those words for the rest of the day. Hosea's marriage was meant to illustrate the relationship between the Lord and the Israelites. And we know so well that it illustrates his relationship between us and the Lord as well. You know what Hosea had to do? He had to go, he had to actually go and buy his wife just to bring her back home. We can be an adulterous people, becoming friendly with the wrong ways, running out on God. When it comes to verse 4, as James continues to talk about being enemies of God, I want to make sure, though, that we understand that James is not exhorting us to just remove ourselves from the world and, and, and shun every friend that we have who's not a Christian. That's not what he's doing. In fact, we should be thinking as, of the world as the ways of the world. 1 John 2 Helps us with this, verses 15 through 17. says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. See, we know we are supposed to be in the world and love the people of the world. Maybe we recall a verse, I don't know, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So we know that loving the people of the world is of the Father. But we are not to love or even to be friendly with the ways of the world. 
the ways of, of, of envy and lust and pride and selfishness and greed and seeking after our own pleasure and the list could go on and on and on. To do so would be actually putting ourselves in the position of God's enemy. And I like how James says, don't you know? That's what he says in verse 4. It's like, don't you understand what's happening when you follow the ways of the world? We often seek freedom and independence by following our own desires. That's a very ironic thing to do. Because James is like, well, what happens is we get this rebellious attitude, right? And, And then you can insert any authority you want to. We just want to rebel and not be controlled, right? So it may be God or our parents or our bosses or our government. And we just get this idea of saying to ourselves, no, you're not going to control me. That's baloney. Don't you know what's happening? We're really just being controlled by sin. We act like nobody's going to control us. And Satan's standing there like, hee hee, puppets on a string. Hey guys, look at this. Nobody's going to control me. I'm an adult now. I can do what I want. God's not going to tell me what to do. He's like, look at these guys. <laughs> they think they're free. But it's either one way or the other. You are either working for God or against Him. There's no neutral zone there. So if we become friendly with the ways of the world... We put ourselves in the position of God's enemy. Now, some would say that James has in mind here unbelievers in the church, right? Like we talked about earlier, the false converts, the wolves in sheep's clothing, not the true church. And others would say, no, no, this absolutely can include believers. And, and I think it, it can. And in a way, we know that this happens with Christians. Not that we're eternal enemies, like Paul talks about in Philippians 3 that we read. But, but even those who are true, we can find ourselves fighting against God. Kent Hughes put it this way. He said, these are painful thoughts that a Christian for whom Christ died when he was still an enemy should in effect lower himself to live as a redeemed enemy of God. I might not be intentionally trying to be God's enemy, but when I live my life in a way that works against His glory and against His will for me, I am acting as His enemy. Right? So when I become friendly with, and, and with the wrong things and watch the wrong things that put these thoughts into my mind that take me away from God, I am in that moment working against God. When I let pride become my friend, I am at that time working against His will and His glory. When I become friendly with lust and gossip and, and laziness and greed and all of these things, selfishness, I'm still God's child. I'm still sealed by the Holy Spirit. I'm still saved by grace through faith in Christ. Hallelujah. But I have made myself like an enemy to the one who saved me. And we know how this feels because we, it's, it's happened with us and other people. Maybe you've had a teammate that you were convinced was planted by the other team because they just kept screwing things up. 
And when we were at youth camp this summer, we were playing kickball, and somebody on my team, the ball just kept coming to them, and they just kept dropping it. And I started to wonder, I don't know, are they getting a kickback from the other team? What's going on here? Or maybe sometimes it feels like your spouse is, is just working against you. And, and you're like, are, are you trying to ruin this day? You know, like, I thought we were on the same team here, but it sure seems like you're trying to ruin this trip. Well, think of that's how God must feel about us so much. That's why the sermon title was Frenemies of God, because from God's perspective, it probably feels sometimes like I'm his enemy, even though we, we are friends. But I picture God saying to me, I thought you were working for me, but you keep cuddling up close to all these worldly things like you don't want what I want. Men might tell themselves that other women at work or around town or even just in their fantasies are their friends who won't reject them and argue with them. And women might tell themselves that borderline pornographic novels and movies are their friends that will give them the romance that they've always longed for. And people tell themselves that alcohol is the friend that helps them numb the pain and forget their sorrows. And we tell ourselves that just binging on the internet and television is our friend that helps us escape the real world. But I'm telling you guys, the ways of the world, they don't want what God wants for us. Their goal is to corrupt and to seduce and to entertain. Not to disciple not to sanctify. And so we have to learn to evaluate the ways of the world versus the ways of God and determine which ones are we too friendly with and which ones are we not friendly enough with. Or, do you think it's without reason that the Scripture says the Spirit He made to dwell in us envies intensely? Now, Verse 5. Verse 5 gets complicated for a couple of reasons. Okay? First of all, if James is saying that the end of verse 5, the spirit he made to dwell in us, envies intensely, is from Scripture, we don't know where. It's not a quote anywhere else in Scripture. And so for that, there's a couple of possible explanations. One could be, he's not saying this is a quote from Scripture. He's not saying the Scripture says this verbatim, but he could be saying Scripture teaches this. This is something that we see taught in Scripture, even though it's not quoted. Or the other possible explanation is that he's actually given a preparatory statement for his quote from verse 6, because verse 6 actually does come directly from Proverbs 3.34. But then the second complication is just figuring out what he means in verse 5 anyway. Because translators don't know for sure if spirit in this sense is actually the human spirit or the Holy Spirit. And who exactly is jealous? Who is envying, so to speak? And so this sentence gets translated in a few different ways. We've read the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, but the NIV in the middle there also says this way, or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Or the New American Standard translates it this way, or do you think that the Scripture says to no purpose he jealously desires the spirit, capital S there, whom he has made to dwell in us? 
you might still be like, okay, so what does this all mean? Well, there's three possibilities. And I really appreciated how Scott McKnight laid these three possibilities out very simply. He said, number one, the Spirit is understood to be the Holy Spirit. And so we would say, for instance, the Spirit, holy, which dwells in you, yearns with jealousy. Or number two, the Spirit as the human Spirit. The Spirit that dwells in you yearns with jealousy. And so in that case, it's kind of a negative thing. Like, hey, you have this awful human spirit, you know, that, that's jealous, that's envious, that's adulterous. And then number three, and understood God with the Spirit as the object. So God yearns with jealousy, jealousy for the Spirit which dwells in you. And so as we think about verse 6, where James starts to bring in God's grace into the conversation, we think, well, how would each of these relate to that? Well, if it's the middle one, number 2, then we, we, it makes perfect it, Either way, it makes sense. But if it's the middle one, it's like, oh, yeah, we, we are an adulterous people. We have this adulterous spirit. We still have this unholy spirit kind of in our... It's our bones. It's the parts of our body. It's our flesh, right? And, and we need that greater grace that God gives that James talks about. But if it's the first or the third, then we get this idea that, that God, the Father, or the Holy Spirit in us is yearning with jealousy. He, he longs for us. He's jealous for us when we go and prostitute ourselves out to other gods. And that can make perfect sense too because we know from Scripture that God is a jealous God because He is holy and because He loves us. Like Joshua 24, 19 and 20 says, But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. I see a connection there about God resists the proud. And you know how it is, though. The jealousy... You know, it, like if your spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend or even just someone who you wished were your spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend, if you saw them out being friendly with someone else. You know the kinds of feelings that start to burn up inside of you? It's that jealousy. And jealousy is definitely not always good. In fact, for us, a lot of times it's bad because we most often experience sinfully selfish jealousy. It's about us. But in God's case, it is a good jealousy because it springs forth from His holiness and His love for us. We are an adulterous people to a jealous God. And this is why we need the greater grace that James talks about. In verse 6, he says, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Don't, don't skip over this. Don't even skim this. Just realize this is big. This is huge. This has to be one of the most comforting statements in all of Scripture. God gives greater grace. And James has been hitting us hard. Okay, not just in 
chapter 4, but the whole time, right from the very beginning, he's just been hitting us hard. And even in this chapter today, we've seen war, fight, murder. We've been categorized as like adulterers and enemies of God. And it's all true, but God gives greater grace. And when I read this, it made me think about being on a football team with God as the quarterback. He's the quarterback and I'm the receiver. And I'll tell you what, man, I will find out every possible way to botch the play. I'll false start before the play even starts. Or or I'll run the wrong route and not be there when he throws the ball. Or I'll run the right route and not even turn around when he throws it and it just smacks me in the back of the helmet. Or I'll turn around to catch it and completely miss it. Or I'll turn around and catch it and run the wrong direction on the field. Or I'll turn around and catch it and then face mask somebody or step out of bounds or just get too scared to carry it and just hit the ground. If there is a way for me to mess up God's desire for me, I have figured it out. But He gives greater grace. You would think He would just bench me or even kick me off the team entirely. But what He keeps doing instead is pulling me aside and correcting me and then putting me back out on the field because He wants to use me. He wants to sanctify me. He loves me. He gives greater grace even when I'm on His team but playing like I'm on the other team. His grace is greater than my mistakes. It's greater than my spiritual adultery. And that is great news. Quite frankly, it is overwhelming news and should make us just want to love Him and serve Him all the more. I love how John Blanchard put it. He said, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That's quoted from Romans 5. And he says, for daily need, there is daily grace. For sudden need, sudden grace. For overwhelming need, overwhelming grace. But we're going to have to be humble. See, God's grace is meant to help us in the sanctification process. It helps us become less and less friendly with the ways of the world and more and more friendly with the ways of God. But pride will ruin that process. What good is it for God to give more grace if I just respond with more pride? It doesn't do any good because nothing happens. Nothing will change. In our pride, we resist God. And when we resist God, He resists us. But He gives grace to the humble And the thing about that is it's only when we're humble that we even recognize our need for His grace. Because when we're caught up in our pride, we don't think we need it. And like I said, maybe in this passage, James has had in mind fake believers. You know, those who are hearers but not doers. Right? Maybe he's talking about the kind of enemies like Paul in Philippians 3, whose end is destruction and whose, shame, whose glory is in their shame. How can you tell if that's you? Well, Paul said their minds are set on earthly things. 
So if you find yourself loving the ways of the world and hating the ways of God, you might have a pretty good indicator of whose team you're on. But I have great news for you. God gives greater grace than all of your sins. It's there. It's just waiting. All you have to do is humble yourself and repent and put your faith in Christ as your Savior and your Lord. His grace is greater. And He holds it out as a gift for you. But maybe also, James has in mind true believers. Or both. But maybe he has in mind true believers who are still stumbling our way through the sanctification process. Making ourselves like an enemy of God sometimes, right? We might be married to him, but we're not always faithful. We might be on his team, but we sure mess up a lot of plays. Well, I've got good news for you. He gives greater grace. He just wants to pull you aside and correct you and put you back out there. His grace is greater. All you have to do is humble yourself, repent, and get back in the game because He has more plays for you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank You so much. I'm always amazed when we study Your Word at how many things there are to learn and how many connections there are just dispersed throughout the Word of God. And I'm so thankful not just for the words of James this morning, but for the words that You gave to Hosea and Paul and John. God, we could just sit and think about that That command to tell Hosea, go and love your wife, even though she's an adulteress. Oh Lord, we are an adulterous people, it's true. But your grace is greater. That's what I love. Like this passage, it cuts us and it cuts us so deep. But then it also leaves us with this, man, this amazing truth. Your grace is absolutely stunning. It is magnificent. It is awe-inspiring, Lord. It is amazing. And in a second, we are going to sing about your amazing grace. And I pray that the words would just ring through every part of our body. Lord, all these, these sinful bones and flesh that we have in us, all the parts that we still haven't replaced yet, Lord, I pray that you would help us just to keep working, to keep replacing part after part, Lord, to let that new engine do what it is meant to do. And we look forward to one day, Lord, when we are completely saved from the presence of sin. But until that time, we have, we have work to do. And we have, work to, we have work to let you do in us. 
God, I pray that we would be so overwhelmed by the reality of God's greater grace, of your greater grace, that we would go and tell the world, that we would just, that it would just spring forth out of us like a well, that we would be like the disciples who said, we can't help but speak about God's grace, about his salvation, about what Christ has done for me and to me, inside of me, and what he has waiting Oh, Lord, help us. Even as we think back to the very beginning of the message and these examples of conflict, of fighting, Lord, we know that we're... Sometimes it's easy to laugh at other people, but it could happen here. And we pray that it wouldn't. We pray that we would be a people of unity, of love, that loves others as Christ loves us that would have our focus on the things of God and not the things of the world. And whenever conflict, anger, strife, jealousy does rise its head out of the ground, Lord, that we would put it to death quickly. And not just in our church, but in our own personal lives, Lord. Whether it's with our kids, whether it's with our co-workers, whether it's with our boss, whether it's with our spouse, whether it's with anyone around us, God. That we would have the practice of repenting quickly, of dealing with conflict as soon as it comes up. Because we are not meant to walk around and harbor those things. And there are so many more things that we could pray about. And I pray that this would not be the only time that we pray about these things, but that we would take them home with us. It's in Jesus' most precious and holy and wonderful name that we bring these prayers, these requests to you this morning. Amen.